Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Michelle Andrasik. I'm excited to have Michelle on the show today to talk about an undercovered aspect of the scientific enterprise. Michelle is the Director of Social and Behavioral Science and Community Engagement for the HIV Vaccine Trials Network and COVID-19 Prevention Network. She's based in Seattle at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and is an affiliate professor at the University of Washington. Michelle's work at the HIV Vaccine Trials Network has made her think long and hard about bridging the gap between science and society. She's worked for years on outreach to disadvantaged and marginalized groups that scientists were hoping to enroll in HIV studies for vaccines and treatments. When COVID-19 hit, this group was uniquely positioned for the moment. Tony Fauci called on this NIH-funded national network to spring into action, bringing all the lessons learned from HIV to the COVID vaccine trials. And one of the underreported successes of Operation Warp Speed was that the pivotal vaccine studies were not just fast, but they were able to enroll black people, indigenous peoples, and people of color at levels roughly in line with their representation in the overall population. If you listen to Michelle, I think you'll hear some basic principles that can be applied broadly across the biopharma industry. Everyone can agree it's desirable to make clinical trials faster and more predictive of outcomes in the real world. Part of getting there means getting better at including traditionally hesitant groups to participate. And when more people get personally involved with science, if it's done right, it can help with downstream issues like equitable access and distribution of vaccines and therapies. It's a crucial first step in building public trust. For those who want to dig into the diversity of the Operation Warp Speed clinical trials, I suggest you read a paper that Michelle wrote that was published in October 2021 in PLOS One. Michelle also co-authored a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Addressing Vaccine Hesitancy in BIPOC Communities Toward Trustworthiness, Partnership, and Reciprocity. I'm including links to both of those articles in the show notes on TimmermanReport.com. Now, before we get started... Do you want to raise awareness of your company with the most innovative people in biotech? Consider a sponsorship of The Long Run Podcast. These in-depth, engaging conversations attract an audience full of scientific entrepreneurs and venture capitalists on the leading edge. The audience grew by 40% last year. For more information, see my business representative, Stephanie Barnes. She's at stephanie.y.barnes at gmail.com. You can also find her contact info on TimbermanReport.com. And do you enjoy listening to the Long Run Podcast? Then you'll love getting full access to my coverage of the top people and trends, my popular Front Points column on Fridays, plus the expert views of biotech leaders who I curate and edit on TimbermanReport.com. Subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. And once people subscribe, they renew year after year at remarkably high rates. Find out why. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe. Now, please join me and Michelle Andrasik on The Long Run. Michelle Andrasik, welcome to The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. How are you doing? Good, good. I have to say, uh, I think, Michelle, you might be the first person on this show with a PhD in psychology. Oh, really? (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Well, good. I'll have to represent then. Well, I I, th- I think this is really important because um, I think you may have seen, you know, uh, Francis Collins in his recent exit interview from the NIH called this out specifically. Like, we need to research a little more about psychology, social psychology, to understand things like all this vaccine hesitancy that's out there, which we really didn't anticipate. So I think you are just really uniquely positioned, I think, to talk about that intersection between, you know, classic biology and vaccine science and and how that meets the uh, the world with psychology and social psychology wonderful yeah and my phd is in clinical health psychology so uh clinical health psychology really does try to um merge biomedical science with um psychology And I have always, uh, from the beginning of my career, worked in sort of a more biomedical setting as one of a few or the only psychologist. So you're used to this. Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll we'll get there in a bit. But I want to start like from the beginning with you. Like, where are you from? I am from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, born uh, and raised in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, although when I was in sixth grade, my mom moved to New York City. So uh, then uh, we moved uh, to New York, and uh, I spent uh, summers and holidays in New York and uh, still continued to go to school in uh, rural Pennsylvania. So... um, City life and rural life uh, since uh, sixth grade. Okay, so you're bridging a couple different worlds there from from early on. Um, what what did your uh, parents do for a living? Uh, both of my parents uh, are uh, not high school educated. My mom worked in factories um, and uh, my dad did sort of odd jobs, bus driver, um, factory work as well. Uh, When we moved to New York, my mom uh, went back to school, got her GED and uh, then got a professional license and became an administrative assistant um, when we were living in New York. She has since uh, retired on um, health disability. Interesting. So this sounds like not a lot of money in, in the household, like hard, hard, hard times. Yes, yes. We were at or below the poverty line for much of my life. And when we moved to uh, New York, we sort of uh, left apartment living in rural Pennsylvania to live in sort of project living um, in uh, New York. And do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I'm the oldest of three. I have a sister who is younger, the middle child, uh, Tanya, and my brother, Nathan, who is the youngest, um, is four years younger than me. Okay. Okay. So you're the, the oldest one. Were you the classic responsible uh, kid growing up? Yes. Yes. Classical, responsible, older child, and classical uh, Capricorn. So, you know, always sort of focused and driven and very organized. <laughs> Okay, okay. And so when did the the light bulbs turn on for you with science or medicine? Well, I have to say, you know, my first passion was really health. And, uh, you know, I came of age um, in the 80s, uh, you know, and 
HIV was part of my reality uh, very early on. And it just struck me as a child that, or at that point, I was really an adolescent, that a lot of what I was hearing in the news, reading in the paper, was not really um, uh, on par with my day-to-day experiences and my day-to-day reality. You know, I was hearing initially that HIV was a gay-related disease, and then later on, you know, that it was uh, restricted to Haitians and hemophiliacs and homosexuals and people who were using heroin. But there were several people in my life who were living with HIV who were none of those things. And they actually uh, looked like me. They were uh, black women, uh, not using drugs, uh, not hemophiliacs, not homosexuals. Um, and, And the disconnect between what I was experiencing in my reality and what everyone was saying in the news and everything I read was really scary because, um, you know, I saw myself in these ladies and I'm like, you know, well, what are they doing that I, you know, I'm not doing or what's putting them at risk? And and uh, there weren't really any clear answers. So I became really, really interested in, you know, educating people about health, educating myself about health. Um, I volunteered in the student health clinic at NYU. And honestly, I was on a trajectory to do um, community-based health. Let, let, let's back up a second. So th- you said that you were an adolescent. So this is your, a dawning realization, kind of high school, undergraduate, college years. So I was like, you, you skipped ahead to NYU. So you, you, you must have been pr- pretty pretty good student. Were you like valedictorian or something? Uh, yeah, I was not valedictorian. I was third in my class, um, uh, but, you know, was an athlete, uh uh, student council president, key club president. I was very much into volunteering, helping out my community, and was from uh, a very young age realized that I had to get scholarships if I was going to go to college. So did everything I could do throughout middle school and high school to make sure that I could get a scholarship to go to college and ended up getting a scholarship to NYU. And so you're in New York and uh, and there's like people around who don't fit the profile, who, who have it. Right. HIV. And there had been, you know, my, when my mom moved to New York, you know, many of the women that I knew who were living with HIV were friends with my mom in New York um, and were very ashamed of, you know, their status and didn't really tell anyone but had confided in my mom and a few other people. So it was very, you know, very much this stigmatized thing where not too many people were disclosing. Uh, but the few people that I knew personally who were living with HIV were black women and and Latina and, and a, um, a Latina woman as well. So you had some personal experience that's that's kind of charging up your curiosity and you're you're beginning to you know take classes there how how did this like congeal into like a career path for you like did you did you think about becoming a doctor what what were some of the options you thought about yeah well i had thought of i had always being a doctor was always on the radar um and then you know as an undergrad 
you know, we uh, got to do some experiments with cadavers and I quickly realized that uh, a medical degree was not really something that I could stomach. <laughs> so that was not really uh, the trajectory that was going to work for me. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, you know, being a scientist, I've never really uh, you know, been one for bodily fluids or anything like that. So. <laughs> it's good to find that out early on. <laughs> yes, yes. But I was always interested in psychology. I mean, I, I entered NYU as a psychology um, grad student, you know, and I think that was, you know, partially motivated by my mom's own depression and some of the mental health issues that I'd seen in my community. So um, I had you know started out as a psych um, major uh, from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, just grew um, really uh, just so interested in psychology and what influences behavior, uh, but had a passion for HIV all along. So when I graduated from NYU, you know, I was on the community path. I wanted to do something to help my community. So um, my first job was at a methadone maintenance clinic in Spanish Harlem. Uh, where I was the substance use counselor for 50 people who um, had uh, varying degrees of heroin dependence um, and, uh, you know, struggling with their heroin use. And about 75, uh, probably closer to 80% of my caseload was living with HIV. They were all black and Latino individuals, and um, it just cemented for me that I needed to do something for my community uh, around HIV. And I, I met, you know, several people who were doing the work, HIV work in the community, and soon took a job as a program director for a community-based organization where we were doing all sorts of HIV prevention, Ryan White case management. And uh, after a year of being there, I was promoted to the director of AIDS services. So I became, um, you know, uh, I went from program manager to the director of, you know, the entire HIV prevention um, case management unit. And so I'm like, well, you know, maybe I should go back and get my master's degree because I only have my bachelor's degree. So I started um, you know, working full time, going to school. Uh, I got into Columbia dual degree program, uh, master's degree in psychology and in health education. And it was then that I started doing research. Just to back up, you, you were in a, a management position pretty, pretty early and felt like, okay, may, maybe I should, uh, study a little, a few other things before. <laughs> Okay, so so you go to graduate school for this dual program at Columbia. What did you learn there? Uh, well, I definitely learned the, my passion for uh, health education. Uh, they had an amazing health education program, and really uh, thinking about how you know my interest in behavior change and health education were really. Uh, closely tied to one another. And the program had an incredible uh, diversity and inclusion component. So um, I was introduced to bias and um, really had to, in several of my classes, 
uh, work through my own biases uh, with my cohort and um, really become more aware of our implicit biases and how they might impact uh, the way we, um, you know, interact with uh, patients, with uh, other people in both our personal and our professional lives. Um, and that uh, education, that introduction to bias and the skills that I built around becoming more aware of my bias and the impact that it has on my work was really um, a, a turning point for me in terms of the way that I viewed the work that I do. What was an example of this? One of these realizations where you you realized, hey, I have bias too, and I need to re- I need to just be aware of that and, and try to uh, compensate for it. Not exactly correct, but you know, be aware and adjust. Yeah. Well, the things that you know, it became really clear to me. You know, the things that I had been told about people who use drugs, for example. And, um, you know, there, you know, this underlying bias that, you know, there's some sort of weakness in on their part in doing that. And, you know, it, it goes along with, you know, the you, you know, the old uh, American doctrine, you know, if you can just push pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, you can, you, you know, that um, you have all the control to make this a better situation as opposed to thinking about the fact that, you know, some people had been exposed to really strong substances at the age of 12 and 13 uh, before they're like completely developmentally, um, you know, mature. And there was always sort of this Thing that that I had this, that was um, making me biased. I think towards people that I was working with. In well, it's it's not just you. I mean, that's just part, that's part of the culture, right? That we learn about per- personal responsibility, kind of what you're you're saying there with the drug addiction, uh, and then you know you learn more, <laughs> as as you say, and you realize that there's some biochemical things going on here when you get uh, exposed to these things really young. Uh, so there's there's larger forces at play. Yeah, exactly. And it also made me think of just the way that I, uh, the way that I speak and the words that I use, the language that I use, just in terms of people. You know, I was always saying HIV positive people, and always sort of focused on behavior early on in my career, and then became like more aware that um, what puts people at risk is not necessarily their behavior, but the situations and the circumstances uh, in which they are engaging in that behavior, you know? So you and I could be engaging in the same exact behavior, but your situation and your circumstance puts you in a low risk um, environment where your behavior isn't going to have the same ramifications as perhaps in my environment where there's a higher viral load where you know chances are that I might come into contact with someone who is um, living with HIV and they may not even be aware of it like those kinds of things so it really made me think a lot about the language that I use how I use it what that language means and how you know I 
was sort of latching on to things that were confirming my own biases. Because I've also, as a psychologist, learning about confirmation bias and, um, you know, and, and the way that we, you know, our state versus trait reality um, and sort of our default um, and how we anchor to certain pieces of information. And then, you know, our confirmation bias just gives more credence to that information. We've learned a lot about that recently. And, and you were learning about this before social media, like it would drive these things home for people. But we'll, we'll, we'll get there in, in a bit. Okay, I want to ask you to expand just a little bit on something else you said about the link between uh, behavior and health education. Uh, you, you realized something early on, like there was some kind of link here. What, what did you observe? Well, I observed that, you know, people really need to hear things from individuals that they trust and that it's not just sort of a, a one-off thing. You know, you can't just hear something from someone you trust and be like, okay, yeah, that's it. But there need, you know, you need to hear something from different angles and different people and in different contexts and situations. So it really helped me a lot because I was doing a lot of HIV prevention education um, around New York City um, in African-born, African-American, Caribbean island communities. And, you know, it really cemented for me how much we needed to build relationships, not just with key opinion leaders, stakeholders, but, you know, with community generally and how what were we doing to develop those relationships and you know have people say you know what if we have questions about HIV this is where we go because we know that those people have good information we can trust them and we can get what we need for ourselves and our larger community and this kind of came to you early, like that that first job, really, like before graduate school, even. Yeah, well, I was at that point. I was in at uh, Columbia, so I was in graduate school. But yeah, before my doctoral work, um, and you know, also being from a community uh, a CBO background, you know, relationships are everything to move things forward because you're often underfunded and under-resourced. So collaborating with other people in the community is really uh, the only way you can reach the goals and objectives you want to reach across um, the community. Do you remember a specific episode like an epiphany where, you know, somebody heard, heard something from a trusted source and changed their behavior in a positive way? Oh, gosh, there are so many that I could pull from, you know, I mean, I guess the earliest that I can remember is even before all of this, you know, I used to uh, volunteer for Frosted, uh, the Foundation for Research on Sexually Transmitted Diseases when I was uh, an undergrad and Frosted had an RV that we would drive around the city and we would park on strolls. And we had a shower, we had a microwave for hot meals, we had a little table where we can sit down and just talk to people. And, um, you know, we had uh, a lot of sex workers who would come on to the RV, um, transgender individuals, uh, lots of men who have sex with men. And, you know, I just remember 
being there and like being completely ignored the first couple of weeks by people who would come in. They just wanted their shower. They just wanted a hot meal. They didn't want to deal with this like 16 or like 17 year old, 18 year old, you know, person. Like, what does she know? Um, but after a couple of weeks, I'm just sitting there and like, you know, remembering people's names and saying, hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. What's going on? Like eventually people would come and sit down and take some of the brochures or what does this have to say? And, um, you know, get tested. And so we had this one woman who, uh, you know, was so afraid of getting HIV tested because she didn't really want to know. Honestly, I think she kind of assumed that she was living with HIV, didn't want to know. And, um, you know, I think a, a month and a half into it, she finally took an HIV test. She was negative. And we had some really good discussions around what she could do, how she could keep herself negative. Now, this was way before PrEP or any of that. So basically condom use and how to negotiate condoms uh, because she was a sex worker and what that would look like, um, you know, and how she could do that without losing money. But anyway, we got her tested and we got her thinking about ways to protect herself, you know, within two months. And it's just the, you know, just not harping on people, but just being there and like knowing that they can come to you if they need it, if when they're ready. That's a great little story. In journalism, we kind of have an equivalent where we call it like the value of hanging around. (laughs) Sometimes if you're just hanging around, (laughs) you are there. And when the idea comes to you, and, and you're well, you're you're well positioned to you know ask that next question of of the the person who who you need to build trust with too to t- to talk with you. Um, it doesn't you don't just flip a switch, <laughs> uh, spend an hour and call it good. <clears throat> okay, so let's let's fast forward a little bit now. You uh you, you get your doctorate. I think this was Miami. Yeah, uh, if I'm not mistaken, University of Miami. Uh, and and how did you end up coming out to Seattle to the University of Washington and Fred Hutchinson? Uh, honestly, um, my, uh, my husband, who was my uh, boyfriend at the time, and I were both from the East Coast. And um, I had to do a year of internship as part of my doctoral program. So I could choose an internship anywhere in the country. Um, the, the VA at Seattle was a, a really incredible um, program. Uh, because uh, you could see women. They had a huge female population and there were opportunities to uh, work on trauma and intimate partner violence. Uh, And um, some of the researchers that I had followed for a long time were at the University of Washington doing HIV work. Jane Simone and Karina Walters. Um, Karina had been in, in New York, so had Jane, and they had moved to Seattle. So I was already thinking of postdoc, and and see, I'm like, okay, if I go to Seattle, there's a chance that I could do a postdoc with um, Jane and or Karina. Um, and then my partner got a job out here. So it was, you know, everything, everything sort of fell into place. And we're like, well, you know, we'll be in Seattle for two or three years and then we're, we're moving back to New York because neither one of us could think of, about settling anywhere but New York. 
That was 2004. It's a long way from New York. It is a long way. Both geographically and culturally. Yes. Yes. Well, we have grown to love it here and have, you know, called it home. But yeah, we came out uh, for the year um, internship. And then I ended up getting a postdoc with Jane uh, Simone and Bill George, uh, sort of combining my interests for substance use and HIV into um, a postdoc. And, you know, the rest is history, I guess. Well, um, I'm, I'm glad that it worked out as well as it has. Um, but um, what, remind me what years we're talking about here. So I actually entered grad school in 2000, uh, my doctoral program in 2000. I finished in 2005 and started my postdoc and then uh, or started my had that was yeah sorry I'm getting my years mixed up finished my postdoc 2005 or sorry internship 2005 and then postdoc started at 2006. <laughs> okay so Seattle's here in the in the middle aughts. Yeah 2004 is when I came out to Seattle for the internship. Okay so the um there was also the HIV vaccine trials network based here in Seattle. For those not familiar, can you explain to people what that is? Yeah, sure. So um, NIAD, the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, funds um, HIV research networks. And the HIV Vaccine Trials Network is the research that, or is the network that is funded specifically to find an HIV vaccine. That is our main mission. Uh, some of the other networks are the HIV Prevention Trials Network. They do a lot of the prep research um, and have done some very specific um, studies looking at prevention and men who have sex with men, prevention in women. Just briefly, for those who are not familiar, PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. This is this is the antiretroviral, like the oral small molecule therapies, not a vaccine, but it also like a very, very useful preventive tool, just to clarify. Exactly. Thank you. Sorry. I'm, I always forget people are not aware of the acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and then some of the other networks are the ACTG, which is the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. They do the HIV treatment research, um, and then there's an adolescent trials network. So we're one of the NIAID-funded networks that have been funded uh, for over 30 years now to develop sort of this infrastructure of research across the country. And our networks are then tied to clinical research sites around the country, which are basically the clinics on the ground in the communities that actually do the clinical trials, that the, the participants show up, give their blood, get the vaccine product, and so forth. There's something like 70 of these sites around the U.S., aren't there? I think there's probably closer to 40 of them because there are about 25 in our network. And then, well, actually, I guess with the AIDS clinical trials, yeah, we might be up to 50 or 60 because I'm not aware of all of the AIDS clinical trials sites that, that actually see okay. patients who are living with HIV. Well, how did, your, how did you come to work with the HIV vaccine trials network? 
Uh, well, when I was a uh, junior faculty at the University of Washington, I was doing a lot of community-based participatory research. Most of all of my grants were really, um, you know, uh, partnering with community and uh, ensuring that I had stakeholders who were weighing in at every point through the grant process to create HIV prevention messaging. Much of what I was doing was around HIV prevention messaging and also addressing implicit bias uh, among providers. And one of my community stakeholders was someone uh, by the name of um, Wakefield. (laughs) And uh, Wakefield had been with the HVTN for many years. Um, And he's like, you know what, Michelle, we have a new position at the HVTN. Um, We need someone who's going to spearhead our social and behavioral science programs. Would this be something that you'd be interested in? I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I had not, um, HVTN was not on my radar at all. This is not the infamous Wakefield of the vaccine world. Yes. Some other Wakefield. Yeah, yeah, no, this is Wakefield. This is Wakefield. Steve Wakefield, yep. Steve, not Andrew. Yeah, no, not Andrew, not Andrew. No, 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 no. (laughs) Just just to clarify. Okay, so you find yourself... uh, coming back to HIV. Oh yeah, I never left HIV. I was always in HIV. Even when I was in grad school, my um, my dissertation work was looking at women who were living with HIV in Florida who had been diagnosed and then never got back into care. So while I was in Miami, I spent much of my time driving around trying to find these women and then interviewing them, trying to figure out how they had become disconnected from care and what it would take to get them back into care. Do you enjoy listening to the Long Run Podcast? Then you'll love getting full access to my coverage of the top people and trends, my popular Front Points column on Fridays, plus the expert views of biotech leaders who I curate and edit at TimmermanReport.com. Subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. And once people subscribe, they renew year after year at remarkably high rates. Find out why. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe. You mentioned a couple of research interests there at University of Washington with like implicit biases of providers. You're working on a few different things um, as a kind of a junior faculty uh, setting your your research agenda. how what, what did you notice with HIV vaccine trial enrollment in terms of the diversity of populations that were actually enrolling in those trials? Uh, well, they were uh, leaps and bounds uh, ahead of most of the other clinical trial um, uh, demographics. Uh, you know, uh, HIV in general, I think, because of the huge advocate base. Um, has from the very beginning, you know, embraced um, diversity and inclusion and understood the importance of community. So they were doing, you know, pretty good uh, when I came. And, you know, since since I joined, we have um, all worked together. And, you know, we just published a paper um, about three or four years ago showing our demographics and our 
um, Latino and Black um, participation rose 30% um, in an eight-year uh, period. And we were already doing pretty good, you know, relative to other clinical trials that were happening outside of HIV. So what were uh, you shooting for in terms of goals? Were you looking for something that was representative of the country's population as a whole or sort of like the the incidence profile of you know who actually gets HIV yeah the incidence profile is our gold standard for sure that's what we are aspiring to uh, we've already met uh, you know the the low-hanging fruit which is at least trying to get a sample that is representative of the makeup of the US population. So, um, you know, generally across our HIV trials, we've already done that. So now we're trying to move closer to representation. And we do that really well in terms of our transgender and uh, men who have sex with men participants. And we're getting there uh, in our BIPOC communities, our Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. Now, you mentioned the role of activism, that the activists were, you know, good at mobilizing um, their people. To, to get connected with the HIV vaccine trials network and, it, and its comp, uh, compadres. Um, what were some of the things that y- you were doing on, on your end um, to, to kind of extend the hand? Uh, like a- advertising or the, I don't know. Um, yeah, we, um, we certainly um, help with advertising. One of the things that we have tried to do um, is incorporate some community-based research in our uh, product development. So making sure that our community partners, many of whom are advocates, stakeholders, some of our community advisory board members are in these conversations with us for each protocol, talking about what information do we think people need to understand, you know, what the protocol is and what the protocol will ask of them and uh, what materials do we need to, um, you know, increase awareness and education and, um, you know, and as we develop the materials, we have time points throughout where we ask people to weigh in. So, for example, if we're creating a video, we um, identify a timeline like, OK, we're going to meet to discuss the script and then the storyboards and then the animatics and so forth. And so we do this with everything that we have created. And we also partner with all of our community partners um, in getting information out. And this is sort of a reciprocal relationship where we're not only just getting our information out, but information that our community partners want to get out as well, or if they're having an event and they need a scientist, uh, you know, some specific with some specific expertise to, um, you know, participate in uh, one of their, um, you know, events or a health fair or something like that. So, you know, constantly developing these sort of reciprocal relationships where we show up and they show up and we're sort of moving um, all of the health information forward, not just the HIV information, because HIV is not the only um, issue in some of our communities. And for many communities, it's not the primary issue. It's one of several challenges faced by communities. So you're not just uh, showing up when you need something from them uh, or, or asking people for stuff. 
Uh, you, you're listening to them and showing them respect, really, by saying, hey, we're thinking about a, an experiment here, a clinical trial. We could be useful, but do you have some input here, <laughs> even though you're not a scientist? <laughs> yeah, and, and do you have input from the very beginning? I think that is really key because often, you know, you get so far along and, you know, you get to a point where you're so far along that even if you do receive some input that it's not going to work or it's not, um, you know, going to pan out the way that you think it will, at that point, you can be so invested in it <laughs> that you still want to move it forward. So it's it's really good to try to identify some of the challenges that people might have with acceptability, uptake, usability early on so that you can address that and make course changes early when it's easier to make those course changes as opposed to, you know, getting far into the race and, and kind of being stuck there. Like, well, now we got to see it through. That's a better way to do science rather than, you know, spend a whole lot of time and money on an experiment that, you know, really tends up being a dead end. <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, you, um, you, you spent a lot of time and effort building these relationships. And you mentioned activists, but there's also community members, like people, churches, I think, you know, you and I have talked about this before. Uh, could you talk just briefly about um, the investment that you've made, uh, you and your colleagues in in some of these other community-based organizations? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, when I first moved to um, Seattle, the first thing I did was find out who the executive directors were for all of the community-based organizations that were doing HIV work and all the aid service organizations and scheduled a meeting with them. Like, hey, I'm new in town. <laughs> I do HIV work. Can we meet for coffee at, or tea or just at your office? And throughout, you know, my time here in Seattle, I have continued to um, invest in these relationships. You know, every relationship is an investment. If you really care about a relationship, you're going to spend time doing it and, or, um, you know, nurturing that relationship. And so not only myself, but all of my other colleagues have had that same outlook, you know, in terms of, you know, getting to know people, making sure that, um, you know, you continue the relationship and that you're reaching out to them, sort of like you network in your professional career, you know, to try to identify colleagues so you can collaborate with. The same is true um, for community and making sure that you show up. Now, the community that I work with also happens to be the community that I identify with. So I do things outside of my professional life as well, you know, just um, as part of that community. Um, but I, I think it does take time. You have to, um, you know, make sure that you're putting the investment in, that you're calling people, that you're checking in on them, maybe having lunch every once in a while to check up and see what's going on. Um, talking about, you know, what your projects are, what their projects are, and how, you know, there might be some overlap and so forth. So now um, 15 years go by and this thing, COVID-19, arrives on the scene. Um, can you describe, like, what was going through your mind and your colleagues? Like, what, I, I, first thing is, like, what can we do to help? But what, what happened? 
Well, I mean, it was a whirlwind. Uh, you know, uh, Larry Corey uh, called all of us in for a meeting and told us that Tony Fauci had just said that we would be part of Operation Warp Speed and uh, I would be directing the community engagement along with um, my colleagues who were going to be directing external relations and marketing. And we were going to be working with the Department of Defense and BARDA and uh, NIMH and NIMHD and all of these other organizations, um, the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute, which, you know, we all work for the same communities, but had never really worked with each other. So all of a sudden we find ourselves in this group of people and we're all Operation Warp Speed and we have to get these U.S. government funded um, trials through and it's not going to be the normal efficacy trials that we're used to where we're recruiting 5,000 people for a trial and the trial lasts for about a year. We're going to be recruiting 30,000 people in each of the five trials and we have about two months to recruit those 30,000 people for each one of the trials because we have to find a vaccine and we have to find it yesterday. The tall order. <laughs> yes, yes. It makes it, you know, even like more heartbreaking now when people are like, man, those vaccines were so fast. You know, how were how those vaccines so fast? And I'm like, just the sheer amount of time that and the dedication from so many people. I mean, for months. All of us were working seven days a week and were taking and like had standing calls on Saturday and Sunday and were working from seven in the morning until eight or nine at night. And if I had to do it all over again, I would totally do it all over again. But I think, you know, that part of the story where all of these people were just laser focused on getting it done and getting it done safely, effectively, and most importantly, efficiently so that we could get a vaccine was just an amazing thing to be a part of. And, you know, I wish more people could sort of see what happened on the back end. I think there'd be a lot more trust. And I share with people, you know, when they ask about how quickly it went, you know, well, this is how it went so quickly. You had all these people who were just focusing on COVID and were moving things through. And we didn't have to wait for the money to get there, which is what holds up science more often than not having the data, really, you know, in these clinical trials. And we had like, you know, ample resources to move from one trial to the next without having to, you know, figure out how we were going to pay for the next trials. And that was that's critical. There were also, uh, you know, it's the biggest pandemic of of our lifetime. And so there were a whole lot of people who were willing to volunteer. Um, and so uh, and there was a, a raging outbreak. So people were getting sick. And so you could actually analyze like one group versus the next. Uh, so there were some circumstances, a whole bunch of circumstances that came together. But I want to but I want to ask you in particular about this aspect, this uh, diversity uh, of enrollment. Uh, because um, that uh, um, that's one of the stories that I think hasn't been told as much. The fact that you did get um, a diverse representation of the U.S. population in, across these five Operation Warp Speed trials for, for blacks, Latinos, uh, uh, Native Americans, I think, uh, as well. Um, 
that that's a success story. I I, I don't think that happened by accident. Um, so could could you t- tell us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah. Well, from the very beginning, we um, knew that we had to get community members involved. Uh, and we knew we had to get them involved really quickly. So we organized community working groups to, um, you know, meet and discuss um, the protocols and if they saw any barriers or challenges in uh, people's participation in the protocols. Um, we reached out as soon as Larry told us that we were going to be part of um Operation Warp Speed, we reached out to all of our community partners and said, hey, you know, we're pivoting over to COVID. What's going on in your community? What are some of the challenges that you're seeing? What do you think some of the barriers are going to be to getting people into these clinical trials? Um, And so had, you know, the first week that we found out that we were pivoting, we were just on phone calls all the time. And we received lots of great information from our community partners. We also received some really critical um, advice in terms of how to move forward. And one of those critical pieces of advice came from our partners at the Indigenous Wellness Research Institute here um, at the University of Washington, who suggested that we create um, scientific panels Um, And so these scientific panels would be um, sort of separated into priority populations. So we had an African-American and black panel of experts. And uh, we asked for um, people to um, nominate people for these panels uh, because we wanted to get um, diverse panels of scientists from um, different backgrounds who had not only spent their career working with and within these communities, but also identified as the communities. And so within a week, we had um, developed five expert panels for each of the priority populations. And these panelists read all of the protocols, the informed consents, met with the protocol team leaders and the sponsors, to go through the protocol to point out if they thought there was gonna be a challenge um, or any kind of roadblock for participation for that priority population, and then wrote up a point-by-point report for each of the protocol team leaders on things that they needed to consider to mitigate any challenges to participation in the trials. And some of the things that came up very early on were the need for mobile units in specific areas, specifically um, urban um, or rural areas, excuse me, and more remote areas. So we started- If transportation's a problem and it's hard for you to go get the vaccine, we'll bring the vaccine out to you. Exactly. So we then started developing a whole cadre of mobile units that um, our clinical research sites could request We also very early on identified 
the challenge of data sovereignty and data ownerships uh, for many tribal leaders and tribal nations. And we actually, all of us had to be educated on what tribal sovereignty and tribal owner or data ownership meant for um, sovereign nations within the U.S. And so we began early on, Dave Wilson from the Tribal Health Research um, Office at NIH took the lead on meeting with tribal leaders and our sponsors and protocol teams to develop contracts for tribal nations that would guarantee that the data was used in a way that they felt comfortable with. Now, this sounds very much in keeping with the philosophy that you described earlier of listening to people, uh, gathering their input, taking it seriously, incorporating it when you can to try to create a, a, a better trial. Exactly. Exactly. And if you look at our trials, um, particularly Native Americans, and I think this is um, the most critical point of these efforts, the contracts for data sovereignty uh, you know, are, are not quick. You need to sit down, you need to negotiate. So by the time we had the contracts in place, Moderna had already been fully enrolled and Janssen was pretty much fully enrolled. But if you look at Novavax, AstraZeneca, you see that the percentage of native and indigenous peoples in those trials is double what it is for any of the previous trials. And across all of our trials, um, and looking at the CoVPN sites specifically, 49% of our participants identified as black, indigenous, and people of color. 40 or seven, sorry, 47%. No, it was a terrific accomplishment. And I'll put the link to that PLOS paper uh, that has the tables in it for people who want to look at that. But maybe I should back up just a second and ask, like, some people might be listening to this and saying, well, why, why is this so important uh, that you have diverse populations in these trials? Because, well, you know, people are 99.9% .9 you know, genetically the same. Uh, this is an urgent thing. You know, if there's a whole bunch of white people in the trial, you know, basically it will extrapolate just fine like medically? Well, you know, for me, it's more about getting people involved in the research so that they feel more comfortable with uptake of the product later down the line. You know, we often in, in the media hear, you know, about the mistrust that communities have and, um, you know, the precarious relationship that many communities have with the medical system just generally. And what we found is that people are much more likely to um, believe in the science, to sort of feel ownership of the science of these products when they're involved in them, when they feel as though they've been a part of it and not sort of on the outside looking in, well, that's not for us. Um, it's for them because we've had no part in it and no piece of it. So what we found is that in all communities, if you have been a part of the science, you are much more likely to believe in it, to accept the products once the products have been developed, and more importantly, to uptake those products. And, you know, for things like COVID, I think it's really you know, important that we recognize that, you know, if we have one segment of the population that's protected, 
all of us are unprotected. We need more of us to be protected um, to ensure good public health. Um, not And if we are missing out on any one group of people or subset of individuals, um, it really has a negative impact on the public health for all of us. But this is hard. There's that whole history of uh, mistreatment uh, from lots of groups, African-Americans in particular. Uh, the, the Tuskegee experiment is still very much uh, in people's minds. But then there's even just day-to-day experiences that people have right, where they feel like they're not being listened to or taken seriously when they go visit their doctor, they might not have a trusting relationship there. And as you know, and we just see like a, a lot of hesitancy to enroll in clinical trials in the first place. How, how do you break through that? Well, we focus on ourselves. We are about building our reputations of trustworthiness, because I truly think that it's, it's, we talk a lot about communities and community mistrust, and there are historical and contemporary reasons for communities to, um, you know, have some questions, be skeptical. And so the onus is on us to develop reputations of trustworthiness, you know, and this can I come I to you and trust you? I noticed that this was something in your uh, latest piece in the New England Journal of Medicine. You talked about shifting the focus from a sole emphasis on changing hearts and minds among members of BIPOC communities uh, to ensuring that institutions are trustworthy, transparent, and engaged with communities. Uh, so this isn't just, hey, let's run some clever advertising campaign. and, and tr- I mean, y- that is part of it. I mean, you do do that. You want people to feel welcome that the, and, and respected, but it, to changing the hearts and minds. But the, as you say, the onus is also on this side. And I think that that really is key. And I think it's one of the many reasons why the HIV Vaccine Trials Network has been uh, successful in being more inclusive is that people look at us and they have feelings of trust. And we have a history of sort of showing up and, you know, and, um, you know, putting our uh, money where our mouths are and, you know, following through and ensuring that we're doing everything in collaboration with our community partners, Um, you know, ensuring that. And, you know, I know that it sounds difficult, it sounds challenging, but one of the things that we have really focused on doing is making sure that all of us can show up in these relationships in a meaningful way. So when we invite community in, we have to make sure that community knows how to um, go through a protocol and that we spend some one-on-one time with our community partner and say, okay, these are the these are the elements of a protocol. When we have our protocol meeting, this is what it's going to look like. And these are really the sections here that we really would love your input in, but we'll we take your input on any part of the protocol. Is this a model you think can be extended uh, across the biomedical enterprise, like for cancer research, for Alzheimer's, on and on? Yes. Yes, I do. Have you seen any examples of people kind of uh, borrowing from the playbook, so to speak, in the last year since the, the Operation Warp Speed trials read out? 
Um, I know that I've been in conversations with many individuals, as have many of um, my colleagues. So I know that people like have the wheels in motion and they're trying to figure out how to incorporate a lot of these elements into the work that they're already doing. Um, I think, you know, it, it can be, you know, a, a little bit of a shift in terms of your thinking. And that shift requires, you know, time and resources. So, you know, trying to work all of that together and figure out, you know, the best way forward takes some time. But I think, you know, one of the things that we've been telling our um, colleagues is, you know, you, you have to start now. I mean, you could find yourself lost in the planning of this forever. But what are some low hanging fruit that you can do now? Like, do you have community advisory boards and how do you use them? And are you using them effectively um, or can you figure out ways to utilize them earlier in the process and to get them more engaged in areas of your work where they can uh, be decision makers and really, um, you know, steer the ship, if you will. Um, and, you know, so I think I'm seeing I'm seeing some movement, um, but I do think that it will take time. And I'm hopeful that, um, you know, people can figure out how it will work for their various institutions and organizations. Do you run into some common objections like, gee, Michelle, this this sounds really nice and good, but um, it's going to take too long and cost too much money. And, uh, you know, um, I, I think, uh, you know, patient, we, we can still we can do this later. Right. Like with the, the community outreach, like with our commercialization people, we come up with a good cancer drug, whatever. I mean, we'll, we'll get it out there. I haven't run into that so much. The thing that I run into is, you know, this, um, you know, uh, ensuring confidentiality and proprietary information. And how do you bring community in and, and make sure that, you know, you have like this open and transparent information sharing where that's sometimes not possible inside the institutions because of the structure and the review process and, and everything like that. So there are some real challenges to trying to negotiate that transparency um, and the sharing of information, uh, which is more difficult for some institutions and organizations than others. You know, people also might just be tired <laughs> at this point. I mean, it just sounds like, wow, taking on climbing another mountain, you know, <laughs> um, to, but um, are you are, are you more optimistic or, or less in some ways? Because coming back to what I said at the beginning with Dr. Collins raised, this, raised that point about there's so much misinformation. Like you, you did all this work with getting, you know, a diverse population in there. And you probably still hear from people who think, well, I don't want to be a guinea pig in this trial, you know, because like, you know, and I don't trust the medical system. I mean, it, it is frustrating I, as a human being. I, I know you, you get this too. Yeah, it is frustrating. But I, you know, one of the things that I am also really excited about that COVID has brought about is that I think people are more interested in science and they have a better baseline understanding maybe of clinical trials and of research, you know, whereas before, 
you know, this was not part of our common discourse to be talking about clinical trials, to to be, you know, hearing about safety pauses. And, and I do think there's a lot of misinformation out there, but I also see it as, as an opportunity to really, you know, capitalize on this increased interest in um, in healthcare generally and you know how do we um, how do we sort of flip the script it's our responsibility I think as scientists to really think about how we can move forward and utilize this as an opportunity to build health literacy to ensure that you know people understand, you know, at a baseline level, what it is that clinical trials are trying to do and why they're so important. And, you know, the hear, hearing you say that, I mean, you know, I, I'm in the information world. And so I know that things are coming out every day. The stories are changing really fast and people are going to naturally have questions. So this is not a, a one-time thing. Oh, this is an ongoing kind of investment. You mentioned health literacy. Uh, there was also a line in your last Nijin paper, I think, where you talked about train the trainer sessions for community health navigators, clinicians, community leaders. I mean, I, you know, as someone like you, you're like me, you read the science, nature, the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA, like this is like part of your job to do this like every day. But most people are, are they don't do that. And they need someone like us to help them almost every week. To, to keep up um, and, and interpret what we've just now learned. Is this something that like companies and institutions that you think ought, need to invest in this kind of capability? I think so. And it goes hand in hand uh, with what we were talking about before. So it's one thing to invest in that, but it's an, a, another thing to put yourself out there as the trustworthy source of that information. And I think that that's really where we can have the most impact on misinformation. Where are people going for their information? And are you seen as the trustworthy source? So if they need information on X, Y, and Z, they're going to come to you and not the blogger um, who has no science degree. Hopefully. I mean, that would be how we would want to shift it. And so how do you put yourself out there as someone who's trustworthy, as an organization and institution is trustworthy so that you're my go to? You know, and I think about my own self, you know, my go to's are Johns Hopkins University, you know, and and, um, journals. But that's not everyone's go-to. So how do we how do we place ourselves in situations where we are the go-to for that information? And that's something, honestly, that we're working on now, um, and trying to think through health communication. I've been th- thinking a lot about um, effective health communication, and have been reading a lot about. Um, what that might look like and how we can really position ourselves to create um, campaigns that have health literacy tools embedded in them um, that can sort of excite people about what we're doing. How can we make it exciting and how can we also position ourselves like, hey, if you want to know about vaccines, HVTN is a good place to go. They've got some really good information on vaccines and the immune system and things like that. So that's sort of where my team and I are now, like trying to really think through 
um, a really good health communication strategy, given this wave I feel like we're riding from COVID. Well, I really appreciate your hopeful attitude there, Michelle, uh, because, and you know, if you just listen to what you were just saying there, I, I think that applies to just about everybody who listens to this podcast, everybody who goes to, you know, my newsletter, um, we're all scientific citizens, scientifically minded citizens, members of communities. And we all have our own little sphere of influence. And, you know, if we all do things like this bit by bit with our family members, our community members, um, you know, maybe we'll get somewhere. Maybe it won't happen tomorrow, but <laughs> it, it, um, it can happen. It can. I believe it can. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. Yeah, thank you, Luke. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.